0: Well, I'm coming off a cold, and so I was saying to to Mark, I hope I'm not the reason Betty got sick, but um, maybe I am. Thank you to Bree for bringing me a cough drop. I have it tucked away just in case. I felt the tickle, and uh, there's nothing worse than having to speak and not being able to get rid of that tickle. So we'll see. Lord willing, I can get through this. Um, But I I feel okay. It's just that I'm on the back end of it. Uh, So anyway, that being said. Well, we're finishing chapter 21 today, so a large text today, but sometimes this happens when we're in a narrative. If we're going to try to keep the flow of the narrative, we could chop this down into small pieces, but we didn't think that that was wise. So we have a a large chunk today because it's a cohesive story. Uh, You have Paul, of course, being seized by the mob and then being taken out, and then giving his testimony before that same mob. <clears throat> so, our text is overlapping today, as Mark read it to you, chapter uh, 21 and 22. And you may or will have noticed, I hope, the the theme pulling through the liturgy of today in the readings and even the singing of uh, prayers for, testimonies of, singing about, the confidence or the need to have confidence, the need to stand in the face of trials, in the face of trouble, in the face of accusation, in the face of the world's hatred. You know, Psalm 71, I, as we read it, I can almost hear Paul reciting this to himself as he's being dragged, uh, being torn apart. The mob is trying to kill him. It's, it says it. They're seeking to kill him right there and how terrifying that must have been. Sometimes we might perceive Paul as being superhuman and not being terrified by a riotous crowd, but I'm pretty confident he was a man. (laughs) And when a mob is gathered around you and is pummeling you and seeking to kill you, it must be a terrifying thing. And Paul was in the midst of that, and I just think perhaps Psalm 71 was just rifling through his brain, um, asking the Lord to be with him, asking the Lord to silence these this murderous crowd. <clears throat> but you you hear the psalmist crying out to the Lord and asking him to not forget him, to be with him in the midst of a trial similar, if you will, poetically, to what Paul was going through. Of course, we heard Jesus' words in John 15 in which he told his disciples this is what was coming. I was going to choose as our word of exhortation the Beatitudes, but went with John 15 instead. But you know that in the Beatitudes, as Jesus begins his charter, uh, teaching his disciples what it will mean to be a citizen in this kingdom, and in the very beginning, redefining the blessed life. So important for you and for me to hear. People in every culture, because everyone, I don't care what culture you grow up in, has a vision of what the blessed life is. For us, we call it the American dream. But whatever that blessed life is, and however you define it, Jesus redefines by saying, hey, here's what the blessed person is. Here's what describes the blessed person. He's pure in heart, he hungers and thirsts for righteousness, she's meek, a peacemaker, whatever. All these things. But then at the very end, tells us that the one who is blessed is the one who is persecuted for my name's sake. And when that happens to you, he says, and this is very powerful and very convicting, he says, when this happens to you, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for so they treated the prophets before you. Now, those are hard things, but 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 Jesus Presents that to us as a very important countercultural vision of what it means to be blessed. <coughs> and we're to be challenged and chastened by it as we hear it. And today, we get a very intimidating picture of Paul's life. And while probably we have not experienced something to this degree, and I don't know necessarily that we will. Uh, again, who knows what the Lord calls each one of us to. But in, in some ways it's convicting because we suffer much less than this. And yet we, str- yet we struggle with it. Um, so I entitled the sermon today, Pick Up Your Cross. Because Jesus, essentially in Mark 8, tying into this same theme, says if, if you want to be my disciple, and I, I assume in here today we, we all would say yes, we want to be that. How many of you want to be a disciple of Christ if I was one of those interactive pastors? Uh, how many of you out there want to be, you know, and, and I assume that all the hands, I'm not that guy. So, um, but I assume that if I were, I assume if I were that guy, uh, and I asked you, how many of you out there want to be the, the disciple of Christ? We'd all raise our hands. Well, Jesus says, if, if you want to be my disciple, then you need to lose your life. You need to pick up your cross. You need to deny yourself. You need to follow me. If any man seeks to save his life, he will lose it. But if any man loses his life, for my sake and for the Gospels, he will save it. So if you want to be my disciple, then in some sense we need to embrace the difficulty, the hard calling that is ours. But it's a hard calling that comes with all of these promises, you know, in John 15, he says, abide in me. I'll be your life. I'll be the life that flows through you so that you produce fruit. It's not on you to go be an amazing vine. You just be a branch. Just, just, just abide in me. And you'll bear fruit. Abide in my love. You know, he doesn't even say abide in my sufferings. He says abide in my love abide in my joy he says I'm telling you this because I want my joy to be full and I want my joy to be in you so that your joy can be full right abide in me so that my love flows through you so that my joy flows through you and yes so that my life giving fruit flows through you and comes out the other side Jesus this is not just a oh boy okay buckle up this is a hard calling we have, and this is going to be a rough one. There is a truth to that, but it's something that comes with amazing promises. You're, you're not on your own for this. Right? Abide in me. Even in the call to pick up your cross, he doesn't just say, point blank, go do it. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. You know, It's not, it's not a thing of, okay, I'm doing it, you, you go do it, and I'll meet you on the other side it's come follow me right jesus is jesus is is blazing the way and yes it's a cross it's an instrument of death it it requires you to crucify your own flesh right to pick up your cross deny yourself but to follow him and in the later in the john 15 you know moving into john 16 he says i'm going to send you a helper I'm gonna send you my Holy Spirit as a comforter and an encourager and a helper to you. As you heard Mark in his opening prayer, so that even when you are dragged before the councils, I'll give you don't worry about what to say. I'll take care of that for you. I'll give you the words to say when the time comes. So we, we must balance these things. We must balance the fact that we are to pick up our cross, but to know that it's not just okay, Jesus did it, he kind of showed you how, now you go do it yourself. No, we always do it in him, united to him, with him. <clears throat> so, that's the backdrop, I think, as we come now to this story of Paul. Now, we have two parts to this story. The first is the, the instigation of the whole thing, and then the second is Paul's speech. So, let's let's deal with them in, in turn. The first thing we have is what instigates the, this whole thing. Now, Well, Remember, this has been building up. Over the past couple sermons, we know Paul has been getting the word. It's not going to go well in Jerusalem. Yet, nonetheless, Paul feels the Spirit drawing drawing him to the fire, not away from it. People have come and begged him. He tells him, please stop crying. You're breaking my heart. But I'm going. I'm I'm not stopping this. He gets to Jerusalem, shares the good news with James and the elders about what the Lord had been doing with him in among the Gentiles in all the lands that he traveled to. And they're very happy to hear this, but James has got a pastoral problem on his hands. And we looked at this last week. And James said, listen, this is all great. I'm very happy to hear about this. But we we got a little problem going on in Jerusalem now that you're back because there are many Jews here who are converts, who are zealous for the law. They, they still want to get after They're Judaism, and remember, we're in that time where that's going to have to fade away, and that's been made clear through the book of Acts, that sort of Jewish law-keeping, ceremonial law-keeping is going to fade away, but God in his mercy and in his condescension has left this, if you will, period of transition from about the time of the death of Christ to 70 A.D. So a a 40-year generation here where there's a transition, and so you will have this. Jewish believers who are zealous for the law, and they hear the word has trickled back to them that, Paul, you're out there telling people not to keep the law, to blow Moses off, not to circumcise their children, and they're all very offended by this. And while, on one hand, I'm sure Paul was bothered that they were bothered, it would be nice if they got the historical redemptive moment they're in he nonetheless submits to the, uh, the call of James, the bishop there, if you will, the, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, when he said, look, I think, why don't we take this strategy, go down to the temple with these four guys. They're, they're wrapping up their Nazarite vow. Go with them. Why don't you pay for it? Make the gesture, hey, I'm, 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 I approve of these guys keeping their Jewish ceremonial law, their ceremonies. I'll pay for it and be with them in the, in the process, that would, I think that would go a long way toward maybe quelling the, the rumors. And Paul doesn't fight back on this. And he goes, as we know. Which brings us to our text today. Paul goes down, he spends the time, announces that, hey, these guys have done their thing, the, their, their time of purification on the other side is over now, and all is well. But there are a group of Jews who are not believers, who are looking for an opportunity to seize Paul and get a hold of him. It's believed that even some of these Jews have traveled from the synagogues where he's preached in Ephesus and traveled down to to find a way to waylay Paul and his ministry here. And they begin spreading confusion and spreading accusations. And the accusation that they make is that Paul has taken Gentiles into the temple where they are not allowed to go once again this would play in Jerusalem because there's already word on the street that Paul is blowing off all the ceremonies that Paul these don't matter to Paul and even though he had been there with these four men to fulfill their vows these guys are coming around and undercutting that by going he doesn't really believe this stuff in fact he tells us not to he tells us to ignore Moses and look he's even taken (coughs) excuse me Gentiles into the temple because they saw him hanging around with this Trophimus from Ephesus who's a Gentile and so he probably was in there with them and so they begin spreading these rumors that Paul is violating the law and the, the sanctuary and the sanctity of the temple well this starts up a mob there around Jerusalem and they come and lay hold of Paul and drag him out of the temple and as the scriptures say very clearly, they seek to kill him. And again, I, I would just try, if you can, to put yourself there. These things become like cartoon versions or just sort of mythology or, or dehumanized stories as if Paul's being beaten by these people, but he's this courageous warrior for Christ. I mean, it has to be horrifying to have a mob of people attacking you and seeking to kill you, but this is what Paul, he knew something was coming, and now he's, he's experiencing what he knew was coming to some degree, but I'm sure it was horrible. They seek to kill him. The ruckus becomes so strong, or the event becomes so severe that somebody runs over to the barracks. Now, the Roman garrison was right there across the street, if you will, from where the temple was. So Rome had an outpost there, and somebody runs over and gets the soldiers who then come and see this chaotic mess, this riot that's beginning to form, and they come over and they try to get a sense of what's happening. But, but they can't understand. Everybody's yelling and screaming. They're yelling in, Ar- in Aramaic. They're yelling in Hebrew. Nobody, these, these Roman guys, they can't understand what's going on. They're, they're trying to get, hey, what's happening here? And they just can't make sense of it. So they decide there's only one thing to do, grab this guy who's being beaten and get him out of there. So they get him. Everybody calms down. They get Paul, and they drag him out. When they try to ask what's going on and can't get to the bottom of it because the crowd kind of stirs up again, they actually pick Paul up and carry him across the street and say, look, we've well, we got to get him out of the crowd. We're going to take him into the barracks. And so they carry him physically across the street, going to take him into the barracks, and before they get into the barracks, Paul, who I, I don't know what condition he's in at this point, but I, I got to believe he's been roughed, roughed up pretty good, politely, mind you, asks these guys, may I ask you a question? He asks the, he asks the Roman guard. He, he's not fighting for his life. He politely says, hey, may I, may I speak to you? And they're thrown off by the fact that he's speaking Greek to them. Now, one, because they completely misread who this guy is. They think he's an Egyptian terrorist. So they say to him, wait, you speak Greek? Aren't you? So they say, so you're not the Egyptian terrorist who brought 4,000 assassins out into... I mean, they think they've got... And, and they're. I guess they're probably... The story they've got in their head when they see him, they oh, this must be that Egyptian terrorist, and the Jews finally got their hands on him, and they're going to you know, beat him to a pulp. So that's who they think they've got in their custody, some, some Egyptian assassin. And, he, and he's speaking Greek to them. And so he says, no, no, I'm, I'm Saul of Tarsus. I'm a Jew. And a respectable Jew. An edu- educated Jew. And I, I'm from no small city up there in Tarsus you know, and so they oh okay so they, they, they realize okay the, the, now we really are baffled because it's one thing you're an Egyptian and they're beating the tar out of you because you're, you're some assassin but wait you're, you're a Jew and they're, they're tearing you to pieces what the heck and Paul says may I ask a request of you and they say okay sure and he says I'd like to address the people Now, if you're the Roman uh, soldiers here, you're thinking, I don't think that's a good idea. But but again, Paul's an educated man. They have no clue what's going on. And so Paul does seem to have his wits about him. And so they say, okay. And Paul then gets up on the steps and kind of summons for everybody to come in. And he begins to speak to them, but he speaks to them in Hebrew. Not so that these guys can't hear, but because this is our language. This is the heavenly language. And when they hear him speaking in Hebrew, I don't know what they expected him to speak in, perhaps Aramaic, I don't know. But they all hush down. And this riotous crowd gives Paul their ear. Now let's get to his speech in a second. But let's just think about Paul's getting here, what's happened. And the the thing that I want to at least reflect on for a second is a theme, again, that we've kind of carried through Acts, and that is the Christ likeness of this. That, that there again, it's not identical to what happened with Christ. Though riotous crowds did come from time to time and try to get a hold of him, but usually when that happened, he slipped out. The Lord gave him, the Father gave him deliverance. We never get to where they're literally tearing him apart. Though we do see in the arrest and as, as the, the suffering of Christ comes to its climax, we do see this play between the, the, the Jewish leaders and, and the Romans. This sort of back and forth. You know, you, you go read the gospel stories and it's like, he's in the hands of the Romans, no, they turn him over here, no, they turn him back, no, they turn him to Herod, no, they turn him back. And so there's this play between the Jews and the Romans in the execution of of Jesus. And I think what Luke is doing for us here, and God in his providence is doing, Again, is not saying, oh, this is a replay. It's certainly not a replay. It's not going to end the same way that Jesus' story ends, and many, many details in here are different. But what Luke is doing, I think, is letting us hear the echoes, the resonances, make little connections that remind us of the arrest, of the execution of our Lord, so that we reflect on the fact, again, that this book is a book about the story of Jesus working in and through his church. This is not ultimately a story about Paul, or stories about Peter, or Stephen, or Philip. What the book of Acts is about is about Jesus Christ by his spirit working through his church. And so we can go back, and I won't rehearse it now. We've done it before. The various stories that have echoes, resonances with the story of Jesus. Now, what we have here in chapter 21, as Paul has done, it's interesting to consider what stirs the crowd. What is it that is the accusation against Paul, and what was it that was the accusation against Jesus? And what's interesting about both of them is is it had to do with defiling the temple. Remember, do you remember the accusation against Jesus? They bring him to the trial with the high priest, and what is the judgment against him? When he's with the Romans, they do not use this. When it's the Romans, they say, he says he's king. But this is not what he was being tried for when he was before Caiaphas. When he was before Caiaphas, it wasn't, oh, he claims to be king. When he was before the high priest... And the Jewish leaders, it was, he said he's going to destroy the temple. Right, he said he's going to destroy the temple. Now, Jesus never said he was going to destroy the temple. That was a false accusation. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. But when he was brought to the trial, the accusation against him was, he's going to destroy the temple. Now, the accusation against Paul is he has defiled the temple by bringing these Gentiles in here. But but there is a real uh, connection between these two accusations because essentially what they're accusing Paul of is destroying the law of Moses. He says we don't have to circumcise our children. Look, he blows off the temple. You can bring Gentiles in there, which, by the way, is a false accusation. Paul did not bring Trophimus in there. He he did not bring Gentiles in there. Jesus never said he was going to destroy the temple. Now, is there some deep theological point there? There may be. There may be, because undergirding, underlying all of this is this battle that takes place. It should not have taken place, but it is taking place between Jesus, the true temple, Jesus, the true Moses, Jesus, the fulfillment of the law to which the whole law was pointing to and would find its resolution in, the law was longing for the day when Jesus would come so that it could finally go, "Ah," and say, we're out of here. We've done our work. We've prepared the way for the king. There he is. The temple can go away. Circumcision can go away. All the ceremonial laws, the clean and unclean food laws, this division between Gentiles, all of these things could go away and give way and make way For Jesus, the fulfillment, the reality, that's what the law was supposed to have done. But instead, Israel had made the law into something toxic. They had pitted it against its fulfillment in Jesus Christ so that when Jesus comes on the scene, rather than the law and the people of God saying, okay, goodbye, and now we cling to Jesus, they want Jesus out of the way so they can cling to the law, to the shadows. And so it's not insignificant that the accusations against Jesus have to do with his relation to the temple. It gets to the heart of what's going on in this relationship between Israel and their Messiah. And the same thing is true here with Paul. Remember earlier, Peter going down to the place of sacrifice and there healing people at the gate beautiful, challenging the very things that are being done at the temple and proclaiming the one temple, Jesus Christ. This has been throughout the book of Acts. So the fact that we get it again here, Paul, and we're coming now to the end of the book of Acts, and now this character, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, like Jesus Christ, is falsely accused for his destructive works with regards to the temple cannot be coincidental. And it's not insignificant. So we're to understand what the true battle lines are here. These are a people... This is a people that refuse to acknowledge their king. Not Paul, Jesus. Instead, they want to hold on to the law. Oh, how we delight in your law. They would sing from Psalm 119. Oh, how we delight in it. We delight in it so much that we will not let go. Never should we let go of the moral law. Never should we let go of the law that way, as if now we don't have to obey but what they had to let go of was the ceremonial law, the shadows that were never, ever meant to be final. They were always meant to be penultimate. They were always meant just to be signs pointing to the reality. And when the reality came, the signs were no longer needed. We didn't, we didn't need the signs anymore. We have the reality, but Israel would not let them go. So my only point here is just to draw the connection between Jesus and Paul, so that we can be reminded, oh, not j- oh, that's an interesting connection between Jesus and Paul. No, so that we can be reminded once again of what I think Luke is wanting to say to us, and that is that Paul is one of us. We are to be united to our Savior this way. That our ministry, that our lives, have the resonances, the echoes the manifestation of the life of the vine to which we're connected. Paul is connected to Jesus Christ. No surprise that his ministry is going to look Christ-like. And so it should be for us. Let us never forget that. We are connected to this vine, the vine that was falsely accused of messing with the idols of his people and was crucified for it and who was vindicated by his father. And brothers and sisters, you and I are united to that vine. It no longer has to do with a temple in Jerusalem. But it most certainly has to do with the idols of our culture. That when we start to meddle with, when we hold up the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, relativizing all the idols of our culture, that when we start to mess with that, when we get to meddling in our society, they will want to raise up a mob and tear you to pieces too. That's what it means to be united to this vine. So we have Paul united to this vine, bearing fruit, and the story is meant to connect. Hey, boy, this sounds like a story I've heard before. We're meant to make that connection. Yes, because it's the same Lord Jesus Christ at work there in his ministry that is at work in Paul and his ministry that is at work in you in your ministry in 2019. So, in some sense, it's a lot like Christ. But then the second half of the story is not quite like Christ because Christ makes no defense. So we, we, we do see a difference here. We're not Again, this is not a one for one. And so we get the second part of the story, and this is Paul's defense. Now we are going to hear, over the next couple of weeks, this story multiple times. Paul is going to stand and give his defense here to the crowd, We're going to hear him give it to Jewish leaders. We're going to hear him give it to Roman leaders on his way ultimately to Rome. So it's a story that in the next couple weeks you're going to be very, very familiar with. The story of Paul and his conversion as he retells it here. Paul here gives a defense as he stands and tells. So he asks the Roman leaders, hey, may I speak to the crowd? And he stands and speaks to them in Hebrew. And when he does, he tells them the story. What is he doing in the story? It's very interesting that this riotous crowd shuts up. It's very interesting. They listen to him. We're told that they're listening pretty intently to him until he utters the words he utters at the very end of the text. And then that's it. The crowd goes crazy. (coughs) And when the crowd goes crazy, right? so he tells this story. At the very end... He says, and the Lord has called me to go and to proclaim this message to the Gentiles. When he says that, that's it. The crowd just tears apart again. They want to get a hold of Paul. Now, remember, the Romans do not understand Hebrew. So once again, they're in the dark. They don't know why. These guys, I can just see they're they're, they're throwing dirt up in the air, and they're yelling, and they're shouting. And these Romans thought it was all going swimmingly because Paul's talking this riotous crowd has calmed down, and these guys are thinking, hey, this was a pretty good idea, letting this guy talk to the crowd. It's really calmed things down. They probably thought he was the Egyptian, and he's up here telling them, I'm a Jew, and telling the story, and this is great, everything's calm. And then Baal says, and he sent me to go to the Gentiles, and then all of a sudden, while they're talking, dirt's flying up in the air, and they're, they're cursing, and they're yelling, and They're screaming. And they want to tear Paul apart again. And so the Romans are like, all right, we've had enough of this. What did he say? So they grab him and they cuff him. And they tether him to the whipping post. And they're going to whip him now so they can get out of him. What did you say that riled the crowd? So Paul allows them to grab him as the crowd's going crazy, tie him up, put ropes around his hands and feet, Tie him to the whipping post. The whipping guy <laughs> gets the whip. And Paul says, oh, can I ask you one more thing? And <laughs> okay. And he says, just by chance, is it okay to whip a Roman citizen? I don't know. If, if, if they're uncondemned, are you allowed just to whip a Roman? I, I assume you are because you're about to do it. And, and th- they're just blown away by this Roman citizen. So they run over and they say, hey, we've got to be careful how we treat this guy. If he's a Roman citizen... So the, the captain comes over and he goes, they're, they're, they're completely confounded by Paul. He's speaking Greek to them. They're like, You're a Roman citizen? Paul says, Yes, I am. I had to pay a lot of money to get my Roman citizenship. Paul says, Well, I was born a Roman citizen. That's like, that's like Whoa. If you really, you'd be, Whoa. You know, because, Wow, he won he, he up the guy. The guy says, I bought this. Paul says, Well, I just am. Yeah, I am a Roman citizen. I was born into this. Probably Paul's dad bought it or served in the military and gained it. And so it was to his family. So Paul has this unique position of actually being this Jew who is born a Roman citizen. Immediately when they hear this, now we heard Paul use this before up in Philippi. After he was beaten. Here Paul is trying to avoid a beating. Remember, he's been beaten this way five times. So if he can avoid one, he gets a get-out-of-jail-free get card right here, and he pulls it. And they say, whoa, he's a Roman citizen. We most certainly cannot do this. Already we've probably gone too far chaining him up. And so they release him and say, hey, we, we cannot treat a Roman citizen like this, so we have to be very careful. Paul calls, pulls that card, and he gets out. Now, this will propel him now down a line of other trials he's going to have to go through because they can't do this to him unless they find him guilty so they're going to have to see if he's guilty so paul makes a defense and actually gets himself out of it very very much unlike uh, jesus who when was pushed to asking and claim his rights did not and paul does and i'm not saying it's a sinful thing i don't think paul's trying to get out of suffering for the kingdom but he's, he is trying to get out of a particular beating in a particular moment if it doesn't have to happen. Uh, who knows what the Lord will have for him down the road. Now, what does Paul tell them? We know what stirs them up, but it's interesting what Paul says. And we're going to, again, come to this story again and again uh, as he goes through these different trials. But it's interesting when Paul tells his story. And why do they go silent and listen? I think, interestingly because he starts out his story saying, I was one of you. I get this anger. I get the beatings. Do you know who I am? I'm Paul, who was Saul. Now, first of all, I, I'm, I, I was raised in Tarsus. I studied under the great rabbi Gamaliel. You all know him. Paul ties himself to Judaism very firmly in this text because he says you all know Gamaliel and he says he was my tutor All right, I had the best of the best for, for probably a decade I was trained under Gamaliel and then you know because go talk to the high priests because they knew who I was because they assigned me to be the guy who went around and found these, these little nests of Christianity of the way is what it was called at this time I was the guy assigned by the high priest. Go talk to them. They'll they'll validate my story. I went and uprooted these nests of Christians. I found them. I arrested men and women. I voted, put my word in for their deaths. When when, uh, Stephen was being executed, as he says later, I stood by. I was there. I oversaw the death of Stephen. That's who I am. I was there. I can identify with your idolatry. I can identify with your sinfulness here. I can identify with your emotions. Because I was there. I was one. But one day, on my way to Damascus, going in fact to persecute other Christians, the Lord appeared to me in a blinding light and knocked me down. Those who were with me, they saw the light too, but they did not hear the voice that spoke to me and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I said, Lord, who are you? And he said, Jesus Christ, whom you are persecuting. And he took me, and for three days I was blind until another guy named Ananias. And notice in the text when he describes Ananias, he describes him as a devout Jew. Right? He, he was not some Jew hater who can, uh, who can confirm this story. He's a righteous man, he's a devout Jew. He is the one, this is in verse 12, then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with the Jews who dwelt there. Right, This was a guy who you could go talk to, who's a devout Jew, who had a great reputation among everybody, who showed up to me. And what did he say? The God of our fathers not some new revelation of God, not some different God, no. The God of our fathers, the Old Testament God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the righteous one. The the New King James says, the just one, same word, the righteous one, and hear the voice of his mouth. Who Who did Paul see? Jesus Christ, whom you are persecuting. This language that Paul is using here is language that would resonate with his Jewish audience. They knew who the righteous one is. The righteous one is Messiah. The righteous one was the promised one who was to come. And Paul says, I identify with you. I was right there until the Lord appeared to me, blinded me. Go ask Ananias. He was there, saw the scales fall from my eyes. And what does Ananias, this devout Jew who has a good reputation among all his kinfolk, he's the one who comes and says the God of our fathers has chosen you that you might see the risen Jesus, that you might see the righteous one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And he told me to get up and be baptized, and to wash myself clean, and to become a new man. So I went back. I went back to Jerusalem and was praying, and the Lord got me out of there and sent me out to take the good news to the Gentiles. And at that point, boom, the crowd fires up and responds. But Paul makes his ministry tied to the history, the culture, the Judaism, the religion of his day, language they would understand. And we've talked about this even in our own defense of the gospel, that one of the great truths, I think great realities of the Bible, is that it is tethered to history. It's tethered to facts. It's tethered to real people and to real testimonies. And Paul does the same thing here for his audience. But when he mentions the Gentiles, all hell breaks loose again. Well, we're going to see Paul give this message again. But again, I want us not today to, to make such, a, just a historical, uh, 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 have a historical vision of what Paul went through, but to use Paul once again to come back to us. Jesus said, be prepared for this is what's coming. And here now, as we approach the end of the apostolic era, it's not the end, but we're approaching the end. We see just as Jesus' ministry came to an end, and it ended with crucifixion and resurrection, so as the apostolic era ends, it ends in a difficult way. Paul's going to suffer here. He's eventually going to go out to Rome, and in Rome he will be, we believe by tradition, beheaded in 60 AD, just a few years from where we are at this point. The apostolic era ends roughly. But I think the point for us is this is the pattern. This is the pattern of service within the kingdom of God. Not every apostle was beheaded. Not everyone was martyred. We believe many of them were, but not all of them. And so also it will be for us. Not every Christian, not every Christian church is going to suffer in those awful ways for the gospel. It's not given to everyone to be a martyr in that sense. But for our family for the church, for the story of the church. This is the story we've been called into. And we, like Paul, are called to be faithful witnesses. We, like Paul, are called to stand. We, like Paul, are called to use wisdom. We've thought about this over the past couple weeks. Again, sometimes he rushes headlong into the fray. Other times he bolts. Here Paul uses the language, of uh, the, the wisdom of knowing when to speak, when to raise a question, which language to speak in, when to call upon his rights in order to prolong his ministry. Paul used great wisdom and so are are we as we have to do this thing in real time in America. It will require wisdom. There are times to speak and there's times to shut your mouth. There's times to be bold and courageous and there's times to get the heck out of dodge. That's the wisdom that we yearn for, that we pray for, and that the Spirit promises to give. So my prayer for you and for me and for Affirmation Church is that we be faithful, that we pray for God's equipping Spirit, that we remain united to the vine so that in him we might bear much fruit, even if that fruit is fruit that comes through suffering, through pruning. May that be God's will for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul and for his faithfulness. It is by his work, Lord God, that the gospel spread out through Europe and, and Lord, from Europe ultimately to America. We thank you for him and for all the apostles, for faithful servants of yours through the ages. Father, you have called us to be united to the vine and to abide in Jesus Christ. But, Father, we know also what that means. It means that we abide in a crucified Savior, but a crucified and risen Savior. So, make us faithful, we pray, to abide in him, his love and his joy and his peace and his faithfulness and his fruitfulness, that we as a church and that we as individuals might be fruitful unto your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.